Um, have you ever uh, sat and listened to somebody tell you something so enthusiastic that um, you, you just, they were just overly enthusiastic about what they were trying to tell you and you didn't get it? You ever been there? You know? I mean, you, you, they're so enthusiastic, you just start grinning, right? You ain't got a clue what they're talking about, right? And you're like that, and maybe you get that goof left, like, huh. you ever done that? Like, they're so excited, you just can't stand, you just, you really, and finally, you just got to kind of admit to them. You got to sit there and say, you know what? Someday, I'm going to hope to be as excited about what you're saying, but right now, I got nothing, all right? That's where we are, right? Well, that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about today, about what the disciples experienced and kind of what we experience and what Paul's going to talk to us. We're going to, we're, we're going to go a whole lot of different places, right? So I've been reading through the Gospels this year. I just decided that in my personal study that I don't spend enough time knowing Jesus. I, I seek God as much as I can. But it occurred to me, I went, you know what? I need, to, I need to understand this Jesus part of God. You know, I need, to, I need to spend more time understanding, you know, I respect, love, all that. But I realize that when I pray, I pray to God, right? And Jesus is certainly part of that. So that's why I did that. I said, all right, this year I'm going to uh, spend time in study of Jesus. So I've been reading the Gospels. And it's been a great, great experience for me. And really seeing the differences. But I really, I really, for our purposes today, I like... Um, what the gospel of Mark does, what Mark did with his gospel. And I think that's really an interesting point to make in the beginning. You know, the gospels, if you're going to read them, they're four accounts, right? And, you know, I, I think I was maybe 40-something years old before I realized that the gospels were not written by the disciples, all the disciples. They were written by two of them, right? Matthew was one of them, John was one of them, but Mark was a contemporary of Peter, and, um, and Luke was with Acts. I mean, with, uh, he was with, well, he wrote Acts. He was with Paul, right? I, I couldn't believe I didn't know that, right? But you get all these four perspectives on the Gospels, which is so interesting. They, they write them completely differently. Have you noticed that? I mean, you really see the differences in that? Why do you think that is? Different people is a great perspective, right? Different crowds. What if they were the exact same story? Would we believe it? Yeah. What, what's the word that we use, the legal word? I don't use it because I don't know anything about law, but called collusion, right? I had to look that up, right? So collusion, that's what we'd call it. If it was all the same story, everybody had the exact same wording and story throughout there, we would not believe it. And I think that's one of the interesting things that you can consider when you, when you study the books of, of the Gospels. And I, it's, it's, it's really, it's, they're completely different vantage point. So we're going we're gonna to go to the book of Mark because I, with what we're going to study today, I really like Mark's perspective on what he wrote as he consulted Peter about the life of Jesus. That's where we're at with this, okay? So let's, we're going to read a lot, I, I, I warned you. And I don't know if this is, how long this is going to go. We may be out of here at 9.45. Hey, bonus, all right? So uh, let's get in there. Mark, Mark chapter 6. I'm kidding, we're not going to get out at 9.45. <laughs> so I have my computer lifted up high. I have my reading glasses and my notes in a big font. I think I'm going to be okay, all right? So got these big glasses on. Let's go to Mark chapter 6, and I want to go down and I want to read the story of uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in verse, Mark chapter 6 and verse 33 is where we're going to start. Now, I will be reading out of the NASB because Cliff told me to, all right? That's why, all right? <laughs> Y'all know that, right? Here we go. All right, now, I'm going to read it, and I, I try to put some emphasis when I read, and so kind of follow along with me. We're going to do a lot of this this morning. Now, what has happened, before we get into this, I always like to uh, 
you know what? I'm wondering if I'm, that's looking a little different. Let me make doubly, triply sure here. I came up and set this all up. There we go. Okay, we're going to start in uh, verse 34. But basically what's happened here, D Jesus has been teaching. I love this illustration from Mark. And people just cannot get enough of him. I mean, they may not understand him, but they definitely want to be around him. And everywhere Jesus goes, what's with him? People. Everywhere. Crowds are always with him, okay? So that's happened here. And so it says in verse 31, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them. Such a part of Jesus. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. It's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii? Let's just say that another way. A whole bunch of money, okay? A whole lot of money. You know that, that commercial you're talking about, right? And he said to them, all right, all right, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving to them, to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all, how many people? 5,000. They all ate and were what? Satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Now, sometimes it's easy to think that this is a, just a story, right? We've got to kind of draw ourselves into it. That's a great sounding story, isn't it? But remember when this is written. And one of, one of the things that makes the Bible such a reliably accurate document is that when this was written, there would have been people around who could have stood up and said, hey, that's not how that happened. There wasn't food. We starved, right? <laughs> and that's what would have happened. And that's what makes the Bible such a great, reliable document is that there are actually people around when, during the time and there is no mention of anything like that in all of history where somebody steps up and says, hey, no, no, this is not what happened in the Bible. The Gospels have never been disproven, okay? That's what I love about this. So this is more than a story. This is an event that actually happened. And that's the thing I have to keep in my head every time. So what happened after that? This is where it gets kind of interesting, all right? Jesus walks on the water. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. There's a lesson right in that right there, right? He left for the mountain to pray. That's the example of Jesus. I wish I could spend a long time on that. It's not the point of the lesson that I'm focusing on today, but I just love that. When he was... When it was evening, the boat that, you know, Jesus sent him away in, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. 
Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got in the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. I love this. I love the definition of this word. Look at this. They were utterly astonished. Here's the definition of it. You can see it on the screen. It's, it comes from two words. Ex, ex hestemi. I'm not going to say I'm sure. But ex, the first part of it means out of. And hestemi means to stand. So it's out of to stand. So literally it knocks them off their feet. I just love that. They were astonished. For they had not. This is the part I'm focused on right here. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but what? Hearts were hardened. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is me, what, I, what I'm thinking right now, in, in my study right now. I do not think that, when, you know how we think of that word in the Old Testament about Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and that means that he was an evil man? It's easy to take that word and think that's what's going on with the disciples here, but I don't think that's it. But I do think that this is a really, really important phrase right here. There is something about the heart and understanding Jesus that goes hand in hand. And that sounds like a trite comment, but it is so deep. Because think about what the, Jesus, what the disciples had, had, uh, had seen. They saw Jesus taking care of people, right? In an incredible way. The bread never stopped coming. The fish never stopped coming so much that they pick up all these baskets of extra food and they only had how many? Five loaves and two fish and how many people? 5,000 people. But suddenly when they're in the boat, they lose sight of that because they had not gained the insight of that. That's a lesson for me. There's something about my heart. And ooh, disclaimer here, okay? It's going to be real easy for when, I, when we're going through this. I may say something because I'm kind of, I'm trying to figure this out myself too, okay, this whole concept. It may sound like I'm saying you or you or you, uh-uh. You know, when you point out what are the fingers are pointing back at you, isn't that what it says, right? So if, if you think I'm talking to you like you don't have it and I got it, please assume I said it wrong because that's not the intention of this. But what I'm talking about this is the condition of the heart in terms of understanding is so incredibly powerful throughout the, uh, the Gospels. It, it just amazes me. Let's look at another one. Yes, right here. One thing I think is important about this story, almost every story I'm reading, is there's always words that are in there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples come Yeah. He didn't suggest, he didn't think it might be a good idea. He made Yes. I think that played a major role in what took place here in that astonishment. If they did not see it in the low, they saw it when their eyes were. And isn't that how we are, right? Yes, right here. Love this. Keep it going. Granted, it is 5,000 men. That's a great point. He, that for the recording, which I'm not sure is going on. We'll find out later. <laughs> um, it was 5,000 men, so it could have been a lot more. That's a great point. And still, we had all this. So great points, great comments. Keep these coming on. 
let's flip over to the next one. And Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to go. I am so glad the internet is working today. Can I just say that? <laughs> this would not be any fun if I'd be just up here reading it to you, right? All right, here we go. We're going to talk about the feeding of the 4,000. Kind of interesting, if I can get to where I want to be. All right. In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, will anybody be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Did they not go back and read chapter 6? <laughs> I don't think they did. <laughs> it's kind of what I'm wondering. Open your Bible. I'm just kidding. Yes. You know, I looked for that, and I, I could not find that. I, 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 you know, to be honest, I didn't have enough time to relate, but it, I, that's a great question. What is the time? Was it you know, like a week? Was it a day? <laughs> for me, it would probably been the next day as ADD as I am, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, those fish. I forgot about that. Yeah, so, but I don't know the time. Yes? I had to be within three years. Yeah, that, that's a great point. <laughs> it wasn't 12 years, now was it? <laughs> we got some wisdom in this class, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that help I appreciate that I can take all the help I can get up here that's great and he was asking them oh wait if I said he said uh, will anyone be able to find enough bread in verse 4 here in this desolate place to satisfy these people verse 5 and he was asking them how many loaves do you have and they said seven and he directed the people to sit on the ground and taking the seven loaves he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. The slide's now there. They also had a few small fish, and after they had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were what? Again. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over, of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and it came to some place I can't pronounce. Sorry. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. This is where it gets interesting. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. You know, and I, I just can see this right here, sighing deeply in his spirit. You can just hear him like that. Oh, man. Yeah. Why does this generation... Seek for a sign. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread. <laughs> and they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. How many people are in this boat? Not very many, right? <laughs> That's where we're going to leave that, all right? Not very many people in this boat. And he was giving them order, and they got one, one loaf, but they didn't have more than one loaf of bread with him. And he was giving orders to him saying, watch out. He was teaching them, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread, right? I think that's funny almost. I mean, kind of. Jesus said, uh, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? What does it say next? 
same thing he says in the previous story. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? It's a reference to something in the Old Testament. And do you not remember? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Now, before we get all judging on the disciples, before I, let me say that before I do, guess where I would have probably been in there, right? I'd have been looking at that one loaf of bread, right? I probably would have done that. Because isn't that, this kind of event that we've been dealing with in, in our life, does anybody in here, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking, if you've got everything about this stuff with Jesus figured out, would you please stand? We'd like to applaud you real quick. Can we do that real quick? <laughs> anybody else got, come on, I'm going to give you a chance. To, don't be shy. I mean, we really need to understand, and we need to get you up here, and I'll go sit down, right? Does any of us have this figured out? No. Let me tell you one more. Smartest guy I know teaches this class in terms of the Bible, right? And he will be the very first one to tell you. He didn't have it all figured out. And so this understanding and the heart and the hardened heart, not about an evil person, but about something about the way our heart gets. And let's make sure we understand what the heart is here. What is the heart? It, it's, is it nowhere in the New Testament is ever the, the word heart used to to imply the actual pump. Not, not at all. It's actually used to describe the innermost being of the individual. The part where understanding comes from, right? The part that we all deal with the same challenges. And, and I don't know what it is yet. I'm still learning. But there's something about that that affects our understanding. Let's keep going. Let's go over to, let's go over to John chapter 13. I'm going to describe this one to you more than we're going to read it. Okay, I'm just kind of make it as a reference so I don't talk about, you know, asparagus and peanut butter or something different. I don't know what I'll be talking about. i got to have something to keep me focused. Y'all know that, right? So uh, the um, John chapter 13, this is the Last Supper. Y'all remember this? I mean, this, if you think about the Last Supper, this is a really confusing time for the disciples. Now, remember, they've experienced all of this stuff with him. The entire time that he's been in his ministry, they've been with him, walking with him, seeing him do this. They've watched him heal people, all the things that they've seen. It's a lot, isn't it? But watch what happened. I mean, this Last Supper, is, it's, it's not a good dinner party, is it? It's not a celebration. It is a celebration, kind of, for the event that they're there for. But think about what happens in here. This is especially hard on Peter. Okay, because what happens? Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter says, I just like him, you know, because that's how I be. Oh, no, you're not washing my feet. <laughs> no, you're not. No, no, I'm going to wash it. Jesus says, no. If I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part of me. Okay, well, then wash my whole thing. Chill out, Peter. You just need your feet washed. I'm not washing the rest of you. That's what Jesus is doing, right? So Peter's like, I don't understand, man. I don't understand this. And then in the midst of that, Jesus tells him, hey, listen. I'm going away. One of you is about to betray me. You think they understood that? This is a tight-knit group, aren't they? I'm going to share with you just a little bit. Of long. I'm going to take a little di divergence here in just a second because I want you to see something I think is so cool. Um, but that's, that's the next thing that happens. And then what happens is Jesus says, I'm going away and you can't come with me. 
What does Peter do? Oh, no, I'm going with you. I'll, I'll, I'll lay my life down for you. What does Jesus say? No, no, Peter, you're not. Matter of fact, before the morning is comes, you're going to deny you even know me, not once, but three times. You think, think Peter's maybe just kind of shaking his head, confusion? Wouldn't you be? I would. So let me give you a little perspective. This is, I've got a point to this, kind of, right? but it's also really cool. My small group has been going through um, the path to the cross by, from Ray, uh, Focus on the Family, Ray Vanderlane. Anybody, anybody seen any of his stuff out there? Great material, by the way. Our small group's going on one. We're doing the path to the cross. It starts back at the Essenes and goes through the story of John the Baptist and then Jesus going out in the, into the, the, the desert to be tempted, and it's all moving towards the cross. Um, and the one that we saw last night was, or last week was so fascinating to me. It was about the, um, the Last Supper. I'm going to pull up some slides for you real quick so you can see this. This is the visual we have of the Last Supper, right, in most of our heads, all right? But is that the way it looked? No. Let me show you that. This is the, the if you want to know what it is, the Path of the Cross. This is it by Ray Vanderlane. If you want to, you want to check out something really cool between now and his, uh, Easter, Go find this material. I've got the only one in the library and can't have it yet, but, uh, but <laughs> go find it, right? It, it, it's probably online, too, and it's, it's, it is fascinating. Uh, Dennis and Jackie have been in the class with us, and I, I've been totally fascinated by this. But this, if you look, this is what he described is the actual, we think it looks like this, but this is actually the way it would have looked. See the picture? You've seen this. Now, what are they doing? They're lying down. Left side, that's key, isn't it? So, where is the place of honor where Jesus would have been? Center of the head of the table. No, that's not what Ray Vanderland said. I thought this was really interesting, right? Because he said that the, the and I'll, I'll point to it up here on this side. He said that he believes that where Jesus would have been in a place of honor is right here. Isn't that interesting? And who do you think would have been on either side of him? One of them's John, right? So because John and they're on their left side, where's John? Yeah. John would, let me go on the other side so I can totally confuse you, all right? John would have been right here, is what he says. He would, huh? Jesus is right here. That's the place of honor. This is the place of the servant, those who washed his feet. And there's some indication that what Ray says is that this might be where Peter actually sat. And that's why he got so upset. No, 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 Jesus, I'm going to wash your feet, not the other way around, right? Because he was sitting in the place of the servant, perhaps, is, is what he said. So who's on the, if, if John's on the far side, who's on this side? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Never thought about that. You know why? Because he dipped his bread with Jesus. The one I dip my bread is the one who's going to betray me. You ever wonder when he dips his bread, why they didn't dogpile him right then? Come on, they just, just stomp a mud hole in him right there, right? That's what I'm thinking, right? But I don't know. Because, and that's a great point, because it's confusing. It's confusing. This stuff is not just lined out in a story that we read. Just like our own lives are not lined out, at least mine's not, right? In a story that we read. So why were they sitting on their, on their left side? Ever thought about that? 
My wife caught this. I thought this was beautiful. Huh? Maybe. Yeah, that's probably right-handed. Maybe, maybe they switch. No, it, it's, there's, I'm going to be on their left side. On their left, yes. That's the, mm -hmm. Yes, we'll leave that alone. Yeah. <laughs> for other stuff. Okay, all right. So the right hand is the clean hand, all right? But here's the point, and I'm on, there's a point to this. This is why I did this. My wife caught this. She deals with, and I have her permission. Yeah, your stomach. There is a real reason for this. If you lay, I'm going to go over the screen again, okay? If you lay on your right side, your stomach is up, and your gastric juices can come down here, all right? What, what happens when this occurs? Does that feel good? No. But if you're laying on your left side, this is why we're always told to sleep on our left side, right? Now the stomach's here, and can the gastric juices go up in here? Isn't that fascinating? So my point is not to sh teach you about heartburn. <laughs> That's just a bonus, right? <laughs> All right, so uh, the, uh, my, my point is there really is a reason there are reasons for everything that Jesus did. And as confusing as it is to us, there's still reasons why, why these things occur. All right? So I want to keep going real quickly. I meant to go here. Let's go to Acts real quick. I'm going to do this one really fast because I am running out of time. Go figure. All right? We're, and we're going we're gonna to move here in just a second. Acts chapter 1. Even after Jesus had arised, okay, Arised. Did I really just say that? What's the word? Arose. Oh, good. Can't delete. <laughs> so, that's real. Arised it. Yeah. <laughs> when Jesus arised it, and uh, when he arose, okay, let me just say that I do know the word, okay? Uh, look in verse 6. That's what I was looking for. After all of this, and Jesus has appeared to them, and they've had their time together on the beach with the charcoal fire that Cliff was talking about the other day. They still, do they get it? No. Look in verse 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom in Israel? And Jesus is like, what? You know? No, he just says, stay here. It's coming. What you're going to understand. And what's, what's really going to happen that's cool for the disciples is it, is it was really... Um, is what happened in, in, in the next chapter. <laughs> they don't know what's coming, but it's really cool, all right? All right. So how do we come to understand? We understand what we've looked at so far today is the disciples and how incredibly, even walking their lives with Jesus every day and seeing all the things he did and still, even on a daily event, not really understanding the whole concept because it had to do with their heart. Yes? They didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. No, they do not. Yes, it's a great point. They didn't have the Holy Spirit is what she was saying. They had Jesus. They did have Jesus. But it's not about that information, is it? Because Jesus said in both instances, is your heart hardened? What's keeping you from understanding this? Okay, so why, let's, let me switch the gears again, okay? Why, um, how do we come to understand? So here's where I go, stop, okay? Because I'm ADD and I go all over the place. We've got to shift gears, all right, because if I said that this next comment right off the bat, you'd be like, "What?" All right, so um, where did my note go on this? There are. Let's go to Ephesians chapter one. That's where we're going to end up. 
this is the last part. This is, this is what I think our answer. And I, I think Paul has nailed this, okay? I love this. And you know what I'm, I'm so excited about is in, you know, this section right here in Ephesians 1. I've been studying this a lot. I've actually taught on this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I, I mean, I love that material, all right? But I've been reading this whole passage of 13 through 14, and I am so glad that Cliff has been talking about all this information about being in Christ versus in an Adam. Hasn't that been fabulous in Romans? Because if you look in this passage, I've been looking at this for years, wondering, what does that mean to be in? That word in is everywhere, and it's just extremely prevalent in this passage here. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, over here, in him, uh, before him, in love. You see that word in is everywhere, in him. It's all through this whole passage, and I don't understand it. So I went to Cliff, and I said, hey, Cliff, I need, a, I need an application of that. He didn't give me one, right? Because he doesn't give grades. He records them, right? We said that earlier, right? So I went to Paul, right? I'm kidding. Cliff has given us these great answers. But I went and read, and I read down in further into this passage, and I love what Paul says about this concept of hardened hearts and this concept of understanding and how we gain it, all right? Let's flip down to verse 15. This is where it begins. We're going to finish ahead of time a little bit. For this Reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which, uh, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Oh, I love that phrase. Can you imagine that? Never ceasing to give thanks for the Christians around you. Do not cease giving thanks uh, for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, listen to this. Ooh, this is so powerful may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Man, is that a great prayer? He's in the midst of his prayers. Paul is saying, while I'm mentioning you, I pray that he will give you a, a spirit. Is he, is he saying, give you enough data so that you understand Jesus? Is he saying, give you enough examples or, or enough time to be with Jesus during that period of time like the disciples were? Does he say that? No, no, no. It's exactly what you just said, isn't it? Thank you. I'll give you your money later. Okay. So uh, it is the spirit, what does it say exactly? Of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And then he flips over to this next part. I love these icons of Bible study that Cliff talked. That's, this is where we're shifting gears, okay? See how weird that would sound if I didn't tell you that first, okay? I love these icons, and the first icon of any Bible study is prayer. And I'm going to be honest with you. I've almost many times gone to Cliff. I've thought about it many times thinking, why are we putting that in there, okay? Don't people just know that? Don't people know to pray before they start Bible study? And when I read this this time, I went, yeah, no, I'm not going to ask that anymore, okay? I'm done asking that question, you know what I'm saying? So, because I, don't get me wrong, it's important, and, but don't we all kind of know that? But look how important Paul says it is. I pray that the eyes of what? Your heart. The very thing that Jesus was kind of asking the disciples about, Paul's talking about it because he's had the same problem. He's had the exact same problem that the disciples had, that, that everybody has. We're all dealing with the same problem of understanding. I pray that the eyes of your heart, 
may be opened. Okay? Such a powerful prayer. Can you imagine praying that for each other and yourselves? Can you ma- I mean, I'm talking about sincere, not the God, thank you for the grass and, and, and the windy, windy day today. And all, you know, I'm talking about the, hey, God, I really need to understand this life. I got some challenges going on. Can you imagine if we were able to pray that for each other for an extended period of time? We're going to talk about that. But here's the thing that I really think is so important, okay? What, what comes next in the phrase? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So what? No. That's a great word, isn't it? I want to share with you a little bit about what I, what, what I think this is. It's so in, in, interesting. This is the key right here. This, to me, is the key of the book of Ephesians right here. Because the rest of the book is about Paul talking about how, what Jesus has done for us and how to walk and how he walks and how we should walk and the walking and the calling and all that stuff and putting on the full armor of God and all the rest of the book comes, to, uh, comes about from this one little point when he says to him, such a powerful prayer, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. So in other words, what um, enlightenment actually becomes something else, doesn't it? In, in the laboratory business, I'm in the laboratory business, we call this the concept of, of, a, of a metabolite. When, when you take a drug, it, it, the body metabolizes it, and it actually becomes another drug. And that can actually be a lot, there's a lot of truth that's, that happens because of that process, right? So if you take a pen, pain medication like, we'll say, Hydrocodone, Lortab, everybody remembers that drug, right? Lortab, pain. When you take that, the body processes it and, and it becomes the metabolite. It's called norhydrocodone. Well, we do urine drug testing in, in our laboratory. And the truth that comes out about that is sometimes when we do a lab test, and I'm not talking about the little peak-up test. I'm talking about the, when we do our laboratory equipment, half-million-dollar piece of lab equipment. So we run that through that, and you can, it's really interesting. You can see the parent drug, which is hydrocodone, and the metabolite should be in the system called norhydrocodone. And many times what happens is we'll, see, we'll have a lab report that will show a patient has tons of hydrocodone in their system. But they don't have the metabolite nor, norhydrocodone. It's negative for norhydrocodone. That's not physically possible. You know, you know what almost always is the case when that happens? They're going in there and they're trying to hide it. So they'll take that little pill and they'll shave off just a little tiny piece of it. Because actually what they're doing is they're selling their drugs. So they don't know how much to shave off, so they'll shave off a little tiny piece of that hydrocodone pill, and it'll blast out and show that they're on tons of hydrocodone. But the metabolite of hydrocodone is norhydrocodone, and it's not there. And that's how you know whether people are being compliant with their meds or not. You know what uh, uh, heroin metabolizes into? Morphine. Morphine is what it metabolizes into. It's interesting. All right, so here, here's my point. I thought this was a cool illustration to talk about this, that enlightenment metabolizes into knowing, actually the action of knowing. That's what occurs. I think that is fascinating. The metabolite of an enlightened heart is a special knowledge. Remember the disciples. Did the metabolize, I can't say that word, metabolizing portion of their life occur? Did they at some point in time get to a point where they understood something? What's your evidence of that? 
their actions, and, and how they died. Yeah. In my opinion, after coming of the Holy Spirit, and, and then it all kind of came together to them because then they just go out and, you know, I love how Peter just right after that just starts preaching about what's going on and they want to stone him immediately. They, Stephen, not very long after that, they do. Every single one of the disciples had this process of going from a, a, a hardened heart to an enlightened heart and the, and the metabolite of, of, this, of this enlightened heart was a knowledge that made them live a completely different way. So much to the fact that they went to their death for what they believed. That's a commitment. That, that's, that's a different heart, isn't it? And maybe that's the case for us. That's what, that's what my point is. All right, so what, um, the big question is, what does this metabolite produce? All right, what is the, what is the knowledge produce? What's the next things? There's actually three things listed here. I'm not going to go into all of them today. We don't have time. And quite frankly, I want to, I want to save them for another lesson because Cliff's going to call me again. All right. So uh, the knowledge of hope, what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches and, what, and power? So hope, riches, and power. And it's interesting to me, I know, uh, kind of observed this, that hope is singular, so there's one hope, Riches are plural. There's lots of them, okay? And power is singular. There's something to that. I'm going to play with that later, right? So here's my question as we get, we're going to kind of wind this down right now. What is, and I'm asking you, what is the hope of his calling? One hope. What is the hope of his calling? Yes, eternal life. It's kind of cool. Don't know what you guys think about that, but I'm kind of interested in that. All right. What is the hope of his calling? Somebody else. For the disciples, their life was tough, but that hope drove them, even through death. Being, you know, as Peter was crucified upside down or whatever it was, right? All those things. What is the hope? Of his calling that comes from being enlightened. Yes. To be in him. Yeah. What is that hope? Huh? To believe. It's confusing, isn't it? What is the hope of the calling of Jesus Christ today? It's an en this enlightened heart. This ability to live beyond this life, this ability to think beyond what is in, what, think of the challenge that's in your life right now. It's the ability to live beyond that. It's this hope that is, has been present even in people through way in the old, every character who ever did anything that was amazing in the whole Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the, the, the furnace, they knew something. They had a hope in something else or you don't stand before them what they stood before, do you? I go to that illustration a lot. That's the hope. It's the hope to be able to, that there's something beyond, that there's something more than what I'm striving for right now because what I'm striving for right now in every way, shape, or form does not give me what I want. You ever notice that? What we strive for in this life does not bring what we want. The hope is something beyond what we can have. It's a life that we can have even right now today in the midst of the challenges you're facing, or even if you had a great day, the midst of that, it, the hope of that is what comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul prays. So the, my, my final word today is this. This is the application of this thing. What if we determine this week 
to pray the prayer of enlightenment from Paul's prayer for ourselves and for others. Easter is 28 days away. What if every morning before, uh, up until Easter, just until Easter, okay, 28 days, what if we prayed the prayer of enlightenment for ourselves and for each person in this class? I wonder what that would do. What if, we, what if we took that opportunity and we, and we used that with, with God? And, and, and the, the reason I use the icon of Bible study, what if we asked Jesus to, when we open the book, to enlighten the eyes of our heart so that something could change in our heart that we could gather? Because it's not what we read, it's what it does to us, isn't it? That's what the Bible does. It's not the fact that I've read these words. It's a fact what these words do to me. God, I pray that you will enlighten my heart so that I can know the hope of your calling better. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. I've said it so many times, Lord, but I'm just so grateful that it's not an easy word to understand because how bored would we be with that? But with that comes a challenge, Lord, and some work and some, some things on our part and some things that you do with it. I just, I don't even understand it, Lord, but I'm so grateful for it because I know it's true. Father, will you, in fact, open the eyes of our heart so that we can know? Will you change our hearts? Will you change our hearts so that we can see something different than what we saw today, Father? And will you allow us to show other people the same thing? That is our goal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.